Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Uh, This is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Simone Variale about coloniality and meritocracy in unequal EU migrations, intersecting inequalities in post-2008 Italian migration. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. Um, so that, uh, I mean, we were saying this before we, we came on, a, that is a very long uh, book title, um, but it kind of sums up um, all of the huge kind of range of different things that the book um, is, is talking about, is, um, is kind of addressing. It's a really rich book and, and there is a lot of stuff um, in there really that covers not just questions of migration, but also thinks through, uh, and I think it's a significant contribution to as well, thinks through questions of of inequality. Um, The place to start, I suppose, is the um, maybe kind of theoretical framework or the theoretical framing for the book. And and this is in those two terms in the title, coloniality and meritocracy. And then as the book describes, the coloniality of meritocracy. So what's going on there, both of those two terms, and then that kind of uh, central idea of uh, the relationship between the two. So, okay, basically, these are kind of two terms from two literatures that, to my knowledge, don't really talk to each other. So meritocracy, it's essentially the idea of... uh, a society or social hierarchies based on merit, individual effort, individual talent, some combination of that. And so the idea that this hierarchy would be then justified because it's about individual effort and that's fine. And I mean, there is a whole literature that I guess some of the listeners might know about, the, the sort of critical, um, the sort of critique of meritocracy, where basically we see that in uh, contemporary societies where meritocratic ideology is really strong, we actually have growing inequalities. Uh, We also have enduring uh, gender and racial inequalities, and we also actually have quite a lot of stigma, for example, the stigma of the poor, uh, who in a meritocratic society, basically poverty becomes imagined as a kind of individual uh, failure. So you are poor uh, because you didn't work hard enough, something like that. So that is meritocracy in terms of a meritocratic ideology. Uh, What the book does, it essentially argues that meritocracy also kind of reproduces ideas of global difference between uh, more modern and more backward kind of populations or regions of the world. And that's where the idea of coloniality comes in, which is, it's a concept that has been developed by um, the so-called modernity coloniality school is a kind of a 
is part of the colonial perspectives. And essentially, they show how beyond political administrative colonization, we still kind of understand global inequalities through the same cultural frames, the same kind of uh, epistemic culture. So we still tend to imagine and discuss, especially in public debate, global inequalities as a kind of failure of populations. So the idea, for example, that uh, the global south is economically and politically there, not because of the legacy of colonialism and later kind of neo-colonial political and economic arrangement, but because there is something about the culture of the populations and social groups that are in these regions that is some, somewhat less fit for a kind of modern market economy, or more recently, a neoliberal market economy. Uh, and that's pretty much where meritocracy comes in, because meritocracy is essentially, it has become in the last few decades, the ideological justification of neoliberal social policy and economic policy. And Italy, which is something that probably people people don't really imagine if they, they haven't lived in Italy, but it's kind of a place where these two uh, ideological configurations, coloniality and meritocracy, kind of came together around the 2008 economic crisis. So essentially the crisis uh, was very much discussed in um, national and EU politics and policy making as a kind of cultural failure of Italians and Southern Europeans more generally. So the idea that essentially these societies are less meritocratic because of uh, some ingrained cultural tendency towards uh, producing less, working less, being lazier in a sense, uh, being less efficient, uh, being more family-oriented and so on. So these are actually all ideas that, as I show particularly in the first part of the book, are not have not come up with the 2008 crisis. They, have not, they haven't been invented by neoliberalism. They have a much longer centuries-old history. But what happened is that basically with neoliberal um, economic arrangements and, when, and with meritocracy, this idea kind of became um, relevant again, particularly in Italy, and became a kind of justification for uh, why the crisis was so bad in places like Italy, Greece, and so on. So the answer wasn't because of wider political, global political economy arrangements. The answer was uh, because that's the culture of Italians, which is less prone to uh, meritocratic hard work. So that is the kind of the coloniality of meritocracy, if that makes any sense. I mean, that, that's a perfect overview of both the Italian context and, and then the kind of a theoretical framework for the book. I think one thing the book does really brilliantly is bring to life that theoretical framework through um, engagement with participants and, and, and with the methods in the book. And I wonder if, if you could kind of sketch out um, the methods you were using, the approach uh, you took, I think particularly in the context of trying to capture uh, migration um, and people who are moving around both um kind of between Italy and uh, Britain or England, uh, as, get, as gets discussed in the book, but also actually the um, sort of uh, migration histories of uh, people coming into Italy as well, which is really important in the text. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, I, I guess 
the short answer, which wouldn't do a great favor to the book, is oh well, I did biographical interviews, and you know, I I sort of <laughs> tapped, <laughs> I tapped into how people allude to meritocracy, to Italian culture, this kind of cultural understandings of, uh, uh, and how these understandings influence uh, motivations for migration. That's true. That's what I did, but doing biographical interviews with migrants. Uh, poses a number of challenges, uh, particularly in terms of sampling. So basically, how do you select uh, people? Um, so what I tried to do, which I thought was really important, sort of bring alive the the topic of the book in a kind of more ethnographic way also, I tried to put together the most diverse sample I could reach in terms of people. I largely recruited people through Facebook groups because in five years ago now when I did the field work, these were really key points of contacts for Italian migrants in the UK, but also for other EU migrants in, in the UK. Um, and I kind of used the combination of uh, generic recruitment messages, more specific recruitment messages where I would ask for people with particular occupational profiles, educational backgrounds. At some point, I really just started uh, sending private messages to people who, having having observed them on Facebook groups, they looked like the sort of participants I needed to construct a very diverse sample. Uh, I think that's, that was uh, unintentionally a very good choice because, in a sense, some of the participants aren't really self-selected because I kind of pre-selected them. Um, and that's when you start getting narratives that are a bit more complicated, a bit more complex and ambivalent also. There is a there is a good chunk of participants that I would assume, actually I would argue, volunteer for a project like this one because they want to tell you something about their success, their success story, and how much these, these ideas about meritocratic Britain are true because of their success. Then when you start moving away from uh, that kind of story and you pay attention to differences in class background, in gender, race, uh, age also was very important, then you start meeting people that give you different stories. For example, people who might have moved abroad in their 40s, that's really a different story. And then, of course women in their 40s or women with a working class background in their 40s moving to the UK, it's even more of a different story. And that's how uh, I guess I came up with this sort of uh, intersectional biographical approach, which actually now, later after the book, I wrote an article about that, which hopefully will be out in a month or so, where essentially I make the case for uh, an intersectional biographical analysis, because I wanted to give more justice to the effort behind the book, because otherwise I could just say, oh yeah, you know, biographical interviews, lots of different people's uh, nice chats, which is also true, but... I mean, it's really, really crucial because one of the things that comes through the book kind of over and over again, and, and you've sort of sketched it out a bit already there, is this sense of the, the, I suppose, kind of classic sociological stratification of how narratives of migration, narratives of meritocracy, narratives of kind of sense of self, actually. And then one of the things we'll talk about a bit later is, is people's own kind of sense of things like national identity, all are framed and, and differ by these um, 
racial, class, gender, education levels, age elements. And, and I suppose one way of kind of cutting into that is basically to ask as the kind of early parts uh, of the book uh, do, what did the participants think about meritocracy, both in, in terms of the sort of general narratives of, of meritocracy between, say, Italy and, and England, but also how do those um, stories of meritocracy really kind of differ depending on who you were talking to? Yeah, I mean, um, there is what I call in the book a kind of shared imaginary, so the elements that tend to be common among participants. Uh, this shared imaginary would essentially include things like uh, the UK as a, a place with more and better opportunities, particularly in terms of, of work and education. Um, the UK has more efficient, a more efficient kind of labor market, um, more openness, crucially for uh, black and Muslim participants, then it also becomes more multicultural. So more open in the sense of uh, expecting no discrimination or at least less discrimination compared to Italy. Um, so it's really this idea of a society that's, that it, it's more based around the individual. And it's interestingly how, I mean, you can find these ideas already in classical social theory, in Weber, for example. So the idea of uh, capitalism and the, the Protestant ethos. Uh, those ideas about differences between Northern and Southern Europe were already there. I found quite fascinating in this project how much they traveled historically <laughs> to get to my participants. Uh, and more generally, I mean, because they, they remain uh, very strong ideas in Europe more generally, even debates about U the European Union, the EU, who gets access, who doesn't, tend to be very much discussed with this kind of a civilizational rhetoric. The, the more developed, the more modern and the less modern European countries. So there is this shared imaginary where you have the meritocratic UK and then you have Italy, which is about uh, nepotism. nepotism. Nepotism is really the key idea. So the idea that social mobility is possible only through connections. Um, the idea of a kind of more fam family-oriented, traditional sort of society. Also the idea, again, particularly for Black and Muslim participants, the idea of a less multicultural society because migration has, in a sense, a more recent history. And so the expectation is that the, the UK has traveled more ground, as a, has done more in terms of multiculturalism. Um, and this is... These are kind of the shared ideas. Then, because these are narratives um, taken through interviews, then you have to pay attention to how people talk about these things in different circumstances. And so what I found was that these, this idea about British meritocracy is really kind of emotionally powerful among younger participants, people who have moved abroad in their, usually in their 20s. There is this idea that this is not really migration, it's an experience abroad, because of course, we are talking about the context of freedom of movement. Um, and so you go to the UK to this place, which you have heard about, of course, and you have also probably uh, read blogs, Facebook groups, so this, this land of opportunities, the land of meritocracy. Uh, and so it's exciting. It's genuinely exciting. You're in your 20s. You're trying things out. And I found that these 
sense of uh, discovery, adventure, actually, was quite common also among participants with a working class or a low middle class background, uh, which is interesting because there is a whole literature about class and culture that very much kind of sticks these ideas to middle class young people. So the idea is that working or low middle class young people would be more concerned with the kind of immediate material problems and interests. But then I interviewed people who would come from relatively secure fractions of the working class or the low middle class. So, of course, the idea of going abroad is it's still relatively fine. You can still uh, imagine that as, as an adventure, even if you have to work in the catering, sec- in the catering sector and hospitality, even if you have a zero-hour contract for some years, this can still be quite exciting. And then there are a number of other intersections that... Uh, become relevant. I can go on with that, or if you want to sort of ask me something more specific. I mean, the, the thing that really sort of stood out for me come, comes later in the book, actually, and, and I think it's a really great way um, of, of sort of coalescing what, what you've been talking about. Um, later on in the book, you, you, you sort of grapple with this sense of shared kind of national identity. I, I think the line is is something like, uh, moving to Britain meant that your participants basically became Italian um, and the sense of a kind of, you know, formation of an identity in relation to where, where they'd moved to. And I, I wonder how, you know, that kind of worked again, as you've already described, sort of as a group, you know, that sense of, of kind of Italianness and encountering the other in Britain and, you know, being sort of asked where they were from and, and all of these kinds of uh, immigration experiences, but also again, crucially, like how was this different uh, for each of them, depending on their particular demographics? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, first of all, I should probably say that the idea of becoming uh, Italian it's partially a reference from another paper from Louis Ryan, which is referenced at the start of the chapter. Uh, it's about becoming Polish in London or England, I can't remember, but it kind of stuck with me this idea because it's true. I mean that uh, as soon as you move to the UK, and this is also very personal, uh, you can't escape being asked why you're here. Uh, And of course, you are from Italy, so the reaction tends to be quite specific, something along the lines of uh, how nice, Italy, how nice, uh, because of of the history of the the sort of relationships between uh, Britain and and Italy. So Italy is very much imagined as a a place for holidays, Uh, the sun, uh, the historic sort of landmarks, the food and so on. Uh, it's kind of a bit stereotypical, but it's it's kind of also powerful. And that's something that you hear. My participants heard a lot. Some of them were, after some years, quite tired of it. I've heard it certainly a number of times. Usually there's also the question why you're here, given that you're coming from such a wonderful place. And that's usually when people realize that... Uh, in your mind, Italy is about austerity, decline, or lack of meritocracy, and so on. And then you realize, actually, most British people aren't necessarily familiar with this narrative. They are much more familiar with the holiday narrative, Italy, how nice. <laughs> of course, that again, that is a kind of a relatively shared experience. I make the case in that part of the book that this is also in a sense, a form of symbolic capital. It's a form of whiteness. It can, it can kind of secure 
some sort of protection to an extent because, because you're still a foreigner. And at the time of the Brexit referendum, that is potentially still a problem. But uh, the UK is a place that in the last couple of decades has very much seen a very strong public stigma of, for example, uh, so-called Eastern European migrants. So in that context, Italianess kind of becomes uh, a form of symbolic capital, a form of or symbolic protection, if you prefer. Uh, it doesn't mean that people can't experience othering or discrimination in specific contexts. That has certainly happened to some of my participants, but this wasn't the the most common or general experience. The, the more general experience was this more mundane sense of Italy, how nice. Um, interestingly, as soon as you talk with the uh, black and Muslim participants, you realize how much Italy, how nice depends on whiteness. Uh, it doesn't mean that they had necessarily worse experiences in their interactions, particularly with British people and particularly in London. But uh, some interactions, for example, with Italians could be quite problematic because they essentially they would hear something they have heard in Italy a number of times. Oh, are you Italian? Really? Like you speak Italian so well. It's because because of this enduring association uh, between Italianness and whiteness. And also, interestingly, in a couple of cases, also some participants reported with British people, there is a sense of surprise perhaps a more polite sense of surprise uh, because of different understandings of uh, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable uh, to say to a stranger, uh, particularly to a black stranger. Uh, but there, there was also this sense that people don't expect Italians to be black. And so th- that shows you already that uh, Italy, how nice, isn't necessarily an equally shared experience. And then, of course, another thing is class. Uh, some of uh, some of the participants working in warehouses, in the catering sector, in some occasions have been treated pretty badly, not necessarily because they are Italian, but because, because they are migrants, uh, because these are sectors that heavily rely on migrant labor. And that has an effect on how people get treated. Uh, in a sense, they are perceived as less valuable as human beings. So it is a form of racialization, uh, less based on the fact that they are specifically Italian and more based on the fact of the kind of job they are doing, which is perceived as migrant work. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, I mean, the, the reflections, particularly around race um, in, in, the, in the two countries, I think was really sort of powerful um, in, in, in the book. And 
as as the book you know describes that you mentioned you know the sort of ambivalence the tensions between um questions of race in italy which um for your uh, sort of white participants almost kind of never come up you know and, and that kind of fame of italy is like oh amazing you know italy beautiful warm uh, full of amazing food which you know is, is is really sort of differently experienced and refracted through uh, race um, and reflections on how meritocracy might work uh, in England um, with regard to a, a different kind of racial politics are really fascinating. You mentioned the B word, uh, <laughs> you know, which like sort of on the one hand feels like a long time ago, but also uh, England now lives and Britain now lives with it every single day. So what what was going on with Brexit? Um, and, and again, actually, the, the kind of inequalities are, are fascinating here, you know, the, the sense of moments where, you know, people get kind of apologies for Brexit given to them. But at the same time, you know, the sense of kind of being an immigrant becomes much more um, prominent. So what, what was the impact of Brexit? Because Brexit kind of is one of the things that really closes the book. And it, it, it's, I suppose, um, a nice conclusion to the text, but at the same time is is an ongoing uh, issue or, or, or problem um, in the both practical and, I guess, kind of um, what am I thinking of, interior or identity uh, lives of the participants? Yeah, um, I mean, I guess, so first of all, when I did the fieldwork, this was right after the Brexit referendum, but before the, the so-called settlement scheme. So basically, it was a time when what was going to happen in terms of legal status and arrangements between uh, Britain and the EU was really uncertain. And so participants really had to fill in this uncertainty with assumptions, uh, which is quite interesting if you are uh, like me, have a background in cultural sociology. <laughs> um, so also at the time of the, a, a bit later, the fieldwork, uh, sort of early research on the impact of Brexit was coming up. One thing that became quickly established was this thing that I call the shock narrative. So basically, uh, research that reports that focuses on the sense of shock among EU migrants because of Brexit. So Brexit kind of uh, being felt as a betrayal of a, a previous way of imagining the UK. Uh, this tended to be research with people who have been in the UK for quite a long time, usually 20 years or so. Uh, many also tended to be kind of in broadly professional managerial sort of positions, had families, had children, so really embedded in British society and so understandably really concerned. Um, my participants were overall quite different sorts of, sorts of people because they moved to the UK usually three, four years ago, at most 10 years ago. Um, so these aren't people who necessarily were massively embedded in the UK. Um, also, I wanted to pay more attention to the impact of uh, class biographies and class background on the sort of politica, political reading of the referendum, uh, partly because I was also reading research on how that affects the, the positions of British people, those who could vote. Um, and so I, I don't know how many remember, but at some point the idea was uh, Brexit was a working class revolution. Remain was kind of the middle class cosmopolitan elites. Uh, and then this was quickly kind of debunked, essentially showing that you really need to pay attention to the petit bourgeoisie, the low middle class, which is much more 
significant into uh, leave, the leave vote. And also I found among my own participants. Um, so what I found is that people with, uh, again, I'm being very, I'm kind of giving broad brushes here. People with uh, a working class or a low middle class background, but also a social biography, a professional biography in hospitality, for example, in, in manual labor, they tended not necessarily to be much concerned about Brexit. Some of them actually pretty much supported the idea that migration needs to be controlled in some way and that Brexit was indeed about too much migration and that was reasonable in some way or another. Um, and then with people with more privileged background, more middle class sort of positions, you have a more uh, a bit more of an explicit critique. So things like Brexit is bad for the economy, Brexit is bad for multiculturalism. But it's in, I, in the chapter I try to deconstruct a bit this distinction between uh, the um, the less privileged and the more privileged participants as a kind of uh, leave versus remain. First of all, um, the people who were concerned by Brexit weren't necessarily saying uh, weren't necessarily saying that they were for open borders for example these were people who would still very much frequently claim that some control of migration is desirable that perhaps indeed there is too much migration and that some migrant groups are actually problematic unsurprisingly the examples that they gave and I'm talking about graduate participants was largely Eastern Europeans, because I I argue that essentially Eastern Europeans kind of became the acceptable way of voicing this kind of uh, racialized or even racist concerns, um, because people don't expect to be called out if they talk about Eastern Europeans. And so I, I suspect that's why they were mentioned so frequently, aside from the fact that they, they occupy a kind of proximity as EU migrants. Uh, but as I said, it's not that uh, middle class or graduate participants weren't invested in these distinctions. Actually, they, they, were, they uh, were very much invested and also they very much saw migration control in class terms. So do you want to do Brexit? Then you should kick out the low-skill migrants, the migrants that ask for benefits, not us. Interestingly, you would hear something like that also from uh, people who would have degrees, but who would still be precarious in terms of their occupational position at the time. And this tended to be women, actually, because precarity is deeply gendered. And so I, f I found quite surprising that people could be at the same time worried about Brexit because they, they weren't the high-flying engineer but at the same time also very much invested in a politics of distinction. So there is the good migrants and the bad migrants. Um, and then at the same time, when we look at the stories of more working class, low middle class participants, some support for Brexit, first of all, it wasn't all of them, but some of them didn't want Brexit, didn't like Brexit, or didn't have any particular opinion about Brexit, because we know that political opinions have to have something to do with cultural capital. So you need to have confidence in being able to express a political opinion. Uh, and so there's that. There's also the fact that even some sympathy for Brexit doesn't mean necessarily some sort of uh, 
extreme nationalism. Uh, actually, most of these people were invested in some idea of multicultural Britain, uh, some idea of inclusive, open Britain. The point is, they could very easily conceptualize multicultural Britain in line with migration control. So you can have an inclusive, multicultural Britain, that's all fine, as long as you reduce migration or, in more extreme terms, kind of kick out, so to speak, the bad migrants. So these ideas weren't in contradiction in contradiction between each other. Oh, the book... Too much information. <laughs> no, no. I, like, one of the problems with doing this podcast is uh, trying to keep things like, you know, sort of less than a, than a several-hour uh, discussion. And, and, and there's so much more um, I, I could ask you, actually, particularly... I mean, there's you know lots of stuff that even kind of you know right now uh, t- today that we're seeing in uh, British news media. We've you know not not to kind of date the podcast too much, but uh, we've seen you know a series of of kind of statements from both the government and, and the opposition around party conferences that were bound up with things like as you've been talking about you know control of migration and, and really kind of clear sort of good guys and and, and bad guys narratives of who and who is not acceptable also in the context of sort of changing patterns of attitudes towards migration. And I guess this to, to, to sort of bring us to a conclusion, I guess this is something that isn't unique to Britain. It's not unique to Europe. Actually, you know, there are lots of different uh, places around the world that have got these ongoing discussions and obviously, you know, migration is, is a global phenomenon. And I wonder what sort of, if not lessons, but like what sort of themes would you like to kind of pick out uh, from the book uh, that might go beyond just the sort of uh, European um, context? Obviously, there's, you know, um, a great deal of work around um, how colonialism might apply beyond the European context. There's a whole you know bunch of stuff about um, immigration and identities in lots of different places. But are there particular kind of ideas that you think might be relevant for uh, audiences beyond Europe. I mean, I'm, my my idea, particularly in, in the conclusion, is that I would assume that this isn't necessarily a story that resonates with Italy or Southern Europe or Eastern Europe, which are the sort of geopolitical context that I've become interested in and, and familiar with this book. I would assume that meritocracy creates and reproduces coloniality also elsewhere. Also because, I mean, neoliberalism is kind of the success story unfortunately, of the post-war years in Latin America, for example, in parts of Asia and Africa. So um, I would be very surprised that if the idea of meritocracy hasn't had similar kind of ideological effects in other semi-peripheries and peripheries of the world. Uh, So that is certainly in general one possible direction. the other direction, I guess um, this is more about time than geography, and that's pretty much the fact that I've become interested in sort of following up. Um, so now that we know what Brexit means, I've become interested in uh, so how have my participants' imaginaries but also experiences transformed? Uh, is this the end of new, the idea of meritocratic Britain? Uh, I could say from, because I'm doing this new project with a colleague from the UCL, Michela Franceschelli, we basically, we are just 
zooming into the experiences of black and minority ethnic Italian migrants after Brexit, but also in the context of kind of multiple crises. So, you know, COVID, uh, the cost of living crisis. So I'm, I'm very much curious to hear about what's left of a British meritocracy as an imaginary uh, in this context. And very early interviews I'm finding that I, I would say, as I assumed partly, that this isn't going to be a kind of a before and after black and white story, but there's going to be some continuities, particularly for people who, even at the very last minute, managed to secure pre-settled status. I'm thinking about one participant I recently interviewed for whom these imaginaries really hadn't dramatically changed. And he felt like he was in a, because of pre-settled status, uh, he felt in a bubble on, of his own, in a sense, that there was the others, th- those coming later, that might have problem. but this isn't really about me and I actually don't really know. And this, these ideas still make sense, so I'm still here for the opportunities, for the multiculturalism and so on. Does it make any sense? I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing that would be a really good sequel to this book. Are, are you thinking about writing... Um... Yeah, writing a kind of full book length treatment um, of sort of what would you call it? The kind of meritocracy and migration after Brexit. <laughs> I mean, that would be great, and I'll I'll have to discuss with my with my colleague, and and maybe we could come up with a sort of a, a co-authored four hands sort of story as, as a sequel to, uh, to to the earlier story. But it's it's really early days, so I'm really kind of uh, interpreting early data. Uh, just thinking aloud, really. But yeah, that would be great, actually. 